This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. The Arizona Fall League has concluded, had the championship game over the weekend, uh, an interesting championship game. Uh, the league also handed out a bunch of new awards in addition to the ones that they typically hand out uh, at the championship game, the MVP uh, and the Darnell Stinson Sportsmanship Award added hitter of the year, pitcher of the year, reliever of the year, breakout player of the year. We'll go over all of those. Uh, and we, we should probably talk about who won the uh Pipeline AFL Total Basis Fantasy League, I guess. Um, Jim sat down and talked to Sean Buckley, the Reds area scout, who signed the uh, newly minted National League Rookie of the Year, Jonathan India. Uh, so you'll get a chance to listen into that conversation. Friday was the deadline for teams to add prospects to their 40-man roster. Uh, so there were dozens and dozens of of players uh, ranked prospects who uh, were looking to be protected uh, 168 to be exact Um, typically about half of those prospects do get added to the 40 man and that was held that held true again this year Uh, so we'll take a look at some of the top prospects that got added some that didn't and uh, some of the more intriguing unranked prospects who got roster spots and we will wrap up by answering a question from the mailbag. Jonathan, you are back from Arizona. You did your stint at the end there, got to uh, uh, take in the Fall Stars game last week and then the championship game on Saturday, two uh, pretty eventful games for different reasons. Um, the championship game um, dominated almost entirely by pitching and almost entirely by one particular pitcher, uh, Caleb Killian who I really would have liked to have seen what he could have done if, if not for, you know, we knew he was not going to go the entire game, but he was perfect. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure you can't get much better than that. And but, perfection, uh, I, I think is, yeah. Yeah. He, right. he, you know, <laughs> and he had the right sort of attitude about it. Cause I, you know, he thought he was going five and he was so efficient that it kind of gained him and all of us a, a bonus inning. Um, that he was cruising, uh, you know, I think he, could have easily kept going. Uh, you know, he only threw what 68 pitches or whatever that the, the total ended up being. Um, it was remarkable, especially considering that he was missing a lot of bats, but he was just filling up the strike zone. And when he wasn't striking guys out, he was you know getting weak contact early in counts and uh, he was in complete and total control, which, you know, is amazing in and of itself. And then when you consider what the offense has been like, uh, you know, had been like in the in the fall league all year. You know, what he did was was really remarkable. Yeah, and it's funny too because when I was out there, I saw him pitch once, and he pitched really, really well. I think it was I don't know if it was three perfect innings, but it might have been, and he struck out seven. But he also in his first game out there, 
I think he gave up seven runs without, without retiring a batter. That is correct. That's um, why his overall numbers are terrible. Which he thanked me for reminding him when um, <laughs> I interviewed him for the Player of the Week story. Um, but, you know, I mean, this is a guy that throws strikes. He led the minors in strikeout-to-walk ratio during the regular season. Um, the Giants were really excited about the progress he made before they included him in the Chris Bryant trade. And, I mean, I I, I point out, I think he might be the Cubs pitching prospect who's most ready for the big leagues. And, you know, hats off to the Solar Sox for winning this because not only, you know, you point out, Jonathan, it was a very – I think this was the most – I don't know if it statistically bears this out, but it, I felt like this was – the most offensive dominated Arizona fall league I could remember. The pitching wasn't of the caliber that it usually is, which isn't necessarily a very high caliber. The hitters are always had the pitchers, but the other thing that Mesa overcame was, I mean, and I don't know if, if you saw this when you were out there, Jonathan, but when I was out there, the three best teams in the regular season were Glendale surprise and Peoria. Right. Like I think they even had the three best records in the league. Right. Um, and, you know, you know, I, I would have not that I was wagering on the fall league, but like when I was out there, the, the West teams were just running rampant over the East teams. Uh, at one point, I think I don't even I think Mace was the only team even close to over 500 in the East. But, you know, in, in this game, I mean, they came out and, and reversed all kinds of trends and, and won pretty easily. Yeah, the final standings in the fall league for this year, uh, you're right, Jim, were relatively lopsided uh, in terms of the two divisions. Um, and it was a pretty interesting race, uh, you know, on, on both sides, but particularly in the West, um, where Surprise, Peoria, and Glendale all finished with 17 wins. Surprise and Peoria, 17 and 12. Glendale, 17 and 13. There were all kinds of tiebreaker scenarios. Uh, but yeah, Mesa was the only team in the East to finish with a 500 record, and that uh, was only by virtue of winning their final two regular season games. Yeah, and I mean, Peoria was probably like in those lat that last stretch of games was probably the best team. I mean, they were playing really, really well, and uh, you know, unfortunately, I think they thought with their win uh, that they had won, so they sort of half celebrated until they were told that they didn't. <laughs> Because it came down to like, uh, I mean, because it was you know head to head, and they tied the head to head with surprise. So then it came to run differential between the two of them, which was only like one run. I mean, it was you know minuscule tiebreaker, uh, so there wasn't that much separating them. But they were playing very very good baseball uh, towards towards that you know in in that last in that last week you know in Mesa. Uh, they clinched, even though they you know didn't have that good of a record, but the other two teams didn't play very well. They clinched the first day after the Fall Stars game, so they they actually were able to line up their pitching. I think Killian would have pitched on Friday like normal, and they you know they wanted him to pitch Saturday, and they had the luxury of doing that. You know, just like I think if Surprise didn't have to clinch on Friday, they probably would have held Owen White. And then we would have had an Owen White versus Caleb Killian matchup for the championship game, which would have been a lot of fun. So as it was, Killian threw six perfect innings, eight strikeouts. Uh, he was followed by Nick Vespi, uh, who kept the no-hitter alive. He did walk a batter to in the perfect game bid. Uh, then uh, his fellow Orioles organization mate Logan Gillespie came in. 
and he struck out the side, did give up that first hit. And then uh, perhaps the best relief pitcher of the Arizona Fall League season, Graham Spraker, came in and uh, wrapped up the shutout and the championship with a scoreless frame and a strikeout. And uh, he was really just pretty much untouchable throughout the entire Fall League. Yeah, I mean, virtually unknown. He had pitched in the Fall League a couple of years prior in, in 19 and didn't pitch very well. Um, but he didn't, he didn't allow a run, uh, you know, all, all fall, you know, he's a little bit older, but I do wonder, cause he was not put on the 40 man roster, um, whether or not he's a rule five candidate. Um, he, he was really good and he's very efficient. He, you know, he doesn't blow guys away, but his fastball cutter combination is really good. Um, you know, it may limit his ceiling somewhat, but. Uh, you know, there were some good hitters that that uh, he faced on a regular basis and went right after them, throws a ton of strikes. And he sort of he, – he's an intriguing reliever to me, you know, not a high-profile prospect or anything like that, but he certainly raised his profile with how he performed. A 31st-round pick out of Quincy University in 2017. He was named the Arizona Fall League Relief Pitcher of the Year, uh, mentioned when we started the show that the league handed out uh, several new awards this year. They always give out the Most Valuable Player Award and the Durnell Stinson Sportsmanship Award at the uh, championship game. Uh, but this year, they handed out Pitcher of the Year, Hitter of the Year, Relief Pitcher of the Year, Breakout Player of the Year, and Defensive Player of the Year. In addition, Spraker got the Relief Pitcher of the Year Award. Uh the most valuable player went to Nelson Velazquez. I don't think that was much of a surprise. Not if people uh, listen to the podcast, because we, we, we mentioned that last week we thought he was going to win. Yeah, I mean, we you know, I, I think last week when we talked about it, there was some uh, notion that if Owen White went out and pitched uh, another, you know, put up another shutout performance in his final start, I believe it was on Friday, um, in his last start of the year, that maybe with a pitching performance that good um, and he was hovering around the one point uh, I think it was like 1.11 at one point as ERA which would have been you know historically one of the best season, single season performances in Arizona Fall League history thought that maybe he would warrant some consideration uh, but he faltered a bit in his final outing and I think that left the door open for Velasquez and uh, yeah the Cubs currently number 28 prospect to Jim that's your list I think uh, fair to say he will make a, a sizable leap up that list yeah he just snuck on there at midseason I, I think he might have just gotten a double a um, after kind of a slow start to his career but yeah I mean he'll he'll be more their, their system obviously is in flux. There's a lot of trades going on. I mean, I would think he'd probably be like in the 8 to 15 range, so somewhere around there when, when we update the list next spring. And his, his fall league season, uh, you know, he finished with a 385, 487, 12 line, nine homers, 24 RBIs, led the league in just about every major statistical category. Um, and, uh, uh, I th have to think at least partially as a result of that uh, got added to the Cubs 40-man roster. 
I think he would have been at it anyway, to be honest with you. Um, he played really well this year in double-A. Um, I mean, I, I don't think it hurt his cause. And maybe if he'd come out and just been overmatched in the fall league somehow, he might not have been protected. But I actually think they would have protected him. I, I think that was a fairly easy decision. Yeah, he uh, certainly did make it easy. Um, mentioned Owen White. He did end up winning the Pitcher of the Year award. Uh, his final numbers in 28 and a third innings uh, posted a 1.91 ERA, a 1.16 whip, and a 202 batting average against. Struck out over a batter per inning. Um, and like I said, you know, was really, really good in all but his last start. Uh, I guess there's one other start in there where he was, wasn't uh, great, but uh, he, he was really good, and that had to be uh, a, a very, very nice sight to see for the Rangers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, 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 you, know, you know, I covered that last game, and, you know, it, it's interesting because he did not have his best stuff, but, uh, and I mean, and he said as much, but, you know, there, there was some pride there because he kind of battled and made it through five innings. He, he got three runs in one inning and then, you know, kind of danced in and out of trouble the rest of the, of the time, uh, you know, had some good defense behind him, but you know, that he, he likes pitching to contact and, uh, you know, you can probably talk to any starting pitcher and they take pride in having a, a start where they, they don't have their, their a stuff and still manage to keep their team in the game. And, uh, that's what he did, and then Surprise was able to to come back and win to make it to the championship game. So even his quote unquote bad start, I think, showed um, you know some some tenacity on the mound that also made the the Rangers uh, feel better. And I was thinking about like last week when we were you know you guys made what I thought was actually a, an interesting case for Owen White to be MVP. We didn't know there was a pitcher of the year award at the time, um, so uh, you know I'm glad that he was you know honored with something, you know, based on the, the outstanding fall he had. Yeah. As you allude to Jason, I mean, this is a guy, the range, we, we, I feel like we've talked about Owen White pretty much for six weeks in a row throughout the fall league season. Cause he's been so good every week. We even, I think we even identified him as a guy to look forward to on the podcast before the season started. Um, you know, but this was an above slot, second round pick, super athletic, projectable high school pitcher who wound up having Tommy John surgery before he threw a pro pitch. And then he kind of messed up a fielding play when he finally made his first start of his career this May, almost three years after he was drafted. And he hit the ground with his pitching hand and broke his hand and missed three more months. Um, but no, he looked really good. He showed four pitches. Um, you know, he showed pretty good control. I mean, I think he can continue to refine that. But I mean, this is a guy who showed in the fall league, if he's healthy, I think he can, he can move fairly quickly. I mean, he's, only pitched, I think, 35 innings in his pro career, four years into his pro career. But I, I think this is a guy who could who could really take off. And you know, could you know, you don't usually see Jonathan, a guy. I mean, he's he's older for for the amount of experience, but like a guy with that much limited pro experience sent to the fall league. You know, 35 and a third innings, none above low A, very offensive minded league, and he had no problems with. It. Yeah, the Rangers clearly had an understanding of who he was as a pitcher and where he was at, and that he, maybe he needed the challenge along, you know, to go along with innings. Uh, you know, so the the combination of those two things, and yeah, I think this you know allows him to you know use this as a springboard to to move a little faster, as Jim alluded to. 
All right, so the two hitters uh, that finished second and third in the league in terms of total bases behind uh, Nelson Velasquez, J.J. Blade of the Marlins, and Juan Yepes of the Cardinals, and they share the Hitter of the Year award. There was a, They were co-winners uh, in the first year of this award, um, and you know, not a whole lot of difference in their numbers. Blade. 316, 435, 600 slash line for a 1.035 OPS. Yepes, 302, 388, and 640 for a 1.028 OPS. Um, I know, uh, Jonathan, you mentioned uh, Nick Gonzalez is somebody else who could have been considered for this award, but uh, any uh, any qualms with, with the selection? I know, Jim. No. You like you like to break ties. You don't like ties. I, it was funny. I I was like, ah, I'm not going to sit there and say that. But yes, it's like if you're going <laughs> to give an award, make a pick. I, I like the I like the the extra awards, but but pick one guy. Who, who would you pick? Picked? There we go. I probably since those guys were close. I mean, slice and dice the the production up. I probably would have given the edge. To, I, I would have gone with the prospect tiebreaker. I would have gone with JJ Blade as my prospect tiebreaker yeah i mean you know you had these are performance awards jim i know well i'm saying if you have to pick one and two guys are close i'll take the guy who's a slightly better prospect or the better prospects i would have taken jj Blade. who would you pick um i'm just gonna be con- contrary and say juan yepes uh no i you know i don't i, I, I mean the best hitter in the league was nelson velasquez right, right. right. yeah that, that, that'll be interesting like down the road to see how this pans out I mean, I guess, you know. I, I kind of liked it. It's a way to honor somebody else. I mean, I think the implication is, you know, it's the guy who's not MVP. Um, it should be the second best hitter of the year. Or... Yeah, which they won't <laughs> quite call call it that. But, yeah, that would be, uh, that'd be interesting. You, you know, the, the one award that would be cool if they added, how about prospect of the year? You could survey scouts, you know, in the final week and, and get a prospect of the year, have an official Arizona Fall League prospect of the year. So what is what would that be? You do that. Right, but we don't officially hand out an award. I'm saying the league, the league, like the Cape Cod League does that, where the Cape Cod League surveys scouts who cover the league. I mean, it's there's a you know a ton of scouts covering the fall league, and just you know survey the scouts final week of the regular season and, and award a prospect of the year. So what? So what is that? Is that the the best pro prospect in the league? The guy who's going to have the best major league career. Yeah, so it's not, right. It's not right. So it's not just the, you know I'm working regardless on the, of his performance. The, well, yeah, but I mean, I would think if you had a guy who went out there and stunk, like there was a year, Corey Seager went there in back-to-back years, and his first year, it was his first full year in pro ball, he promoted to high A, like for the last month of the season, and was worn out, and what did he hit, Jonathan, like 200 in the fall league? It was terrible, I mean, You would not pick Corey Seager as the best pro prospect that year, but but yeah, I mean, I would assume most of your time, your, your best pro prospect would perform pretty well out there, like... Not to steal your your thunder, Jonathan. I know you're still working on the list, but I know like if I were if if I were the best prospect I saw in the two weeks I was out there, and from talking to scouts when I was out there, I think they would have picked Gabriel Moreno, the the Blue Jays catcher, as as the best pro prospect. Yeah, and I think that's I mean, and he produced right. So you know, Marco Luciano might be a better prospect, you know, in a vacuum overall, but in terms of what guys did in the fall league. I don't think you would put Marco Luciano ahead of Gabriel Moreno because Moreno has, you know, tremendous upside and he performed. And I think that's, that's what that, 
you know, if you were to give a top prospect, it would be that, you know, when, when we were discussing the, the, the list that I'm working on, uh, you know, it's not just performance. So you will see guys fairly high on the list who didn't necessarily put up big numbers. Uh, and conversely, some guys played themselves onto that list who weren't thought of, you know, Nelson Velasquez was not, you know, obviously 28th on the Cubs list. He certainly didn't come in as a top prospect, but he will be on that list. So, you know, it's, it's finding some middle ground. There's no scientific formula for it, but no, I, I think that would be an interesting thing to, to find out. But for now, we are the unofficial givers of that award. But and I will say, I, I really like the fact, I mean, I think this is great that they gave, what is it, five awards to six players, no, six awards to seven players, right? Is that how we did it? Maybe eight. I'm, oh, I forgot about the Stenson Award. But yeah, I mean, they, I, I like the fact that they gave out, you know, they honored a number of players. I mean, I think that's great for the Fall League. Let's honor some guys who played well. These are all deserving picks. And it it gives, you know, it gives more notoriety to the league, gives more notoriety to the players. And the kind of the cool thing is, and it, I'm not, <laughs> this is not an indictment of our prospect ranking, but Nelson Velasquez is number 28 on the Cubs list. Owen White's number 28 in the Rangers list. Juan Yepes is number 26 on the Cardinals list. Lede's a top 100 guy. Graham Spraker's not ranked. Elijah Dunham's number 24 on the Yankees list. Jackson Clough's number 19 on the Nationals list. And even Logan O'Hoppy, who, who won the Sportsmanship Award and also played really, really well out there, is number 11 prospect. So, I mean, these are not guys who are heralded, right. but these are all good prospects who are on the rise. And I, I think it's cool. I, I, I don't know who's, if it was Chuck Fox's idea or, or whose idea it was to to greatly expand the awards, but, but I like this a lot. I, I think, I, I think this is good for the league and good for the players. Yeah. So quickly Donham, Elijah Donham of the Yankees, you mentioned that their number 24 prospect, he was the breakout player of the year. Uh, do you guys agree with that? Yeah. I mean, there's a number of guys, I mean, you theoretically yeah. could have picked, you know, if you wanted to double up Nelson Velasquez, Owen White and Juan Yepes all could have qualified for that too. But yeah, if you're not, doubling up on the awards you know we've talked about elijah dunham you know he wasn't drafted you know he's kind of a victim of the five-round draft um but he can he's got a really good approach and he can hit and he can he has power and, and he, he he's not he he, yeah, he led the league in steals he's probably an average runner he's aggressive on the base pass um he's a good player um and so i think that is a good one i mean it's it, it was this was really the year of the breakout player. I mean, it wasn't – if we were coming in, what would we have thought? You know, Spencer Torkelson might have been the the MVP, and, you know, C.J. Abrams could have been the hitter of the year, and Gorman. You know, Mackenzie Gore, whoever would have been pitcher of the year. But, I mean, it's really non-top 100 guys who jumped out. Which, which often happens. I mean, you look at the list of MVPs, you know, it's often not, you know, the guys who – who are the 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 top ranked prospects? Now those guys sometimes come in and, and perform really well, uh, and yeah, and I I think Dunham's a fine choice for that. I mean Curtis Mead, yeah. Um, I really like Nathan Eaton from the Royals. He was fun, you know. And Drew Lugbauer was unbelievable when he, yeah, for the yeah. short time he was there. I mean he he Slug hit Bauer, six home runs right. in about four weeks. So. You gotta call him Slugbauer. Okay. Uh, Jonathan, you mentioned the list of AFL MVPs. There are some pretty good names in there over the past, uh, say, 10 years, but uh, also some some guys that uh, did not go on to big league success. But going down the list um, in reverse order from this year, prior to Velazquez in 2019, Royce Lewis, the Twins, TBD there. Uh, 2018, Keston Hyera. Uh, 2017, Ronald Acuna Jr. 2016, Gleyber Torres. 
2015, Adam Angle. 2014, Greg Bird. 2013 was Chris Bryant. 2012, Chris McGinnis. And 2011, Nolan Arenado. So you got your mix of uh, huge big league stars and some guys that uh, fizzled out. All right, and then the rest of this year's awards. Uh, quickly, the Defensive Player of the Year, Jackson Clough. And I know when that was named, I asked you guys, uh, <laughs> you know, have you seen much of him on defense? And, and hadn't really. And then he uh, quite conveniently came through with a web gem in the championship game. Which led to the slack of the night from colleague Sam Dykstra. It's like, well, I think I found video of him playing defense. Uh, yeah, that was on cue, uh, you know, because I wrote up the sort of roundup of those award winners, you know, that some of the other ones, it's easier just to tick off stats and things like that. But with that, it was, you know, and he didn't even play that many games in Salt River where we had the benefit of stat cast. So there wasn't that much to go on. But, uh, you know, he only made, I think, one error the entire fall league uh, and showed off the plus arm and above average defense. Those were his grades on his report. And you know, lived up to it. And that play he made in the championship game was, was, was a remarkable play on a ball that was hit like 112 miles an hour. Yeah. The hardest hit ball of the, of the night, I think. And, and wasn't that also was the no hitter and perfect game intact still at that time? Wrong team. Oh, sorry. Oh yeah. Well, that, that was not a, so uh, yes, gem but preserving gem. That one way or the other. That's right. And okay. That's a tough award to give out too, just because as you mentioned, Jonathan, there's really only the stack cast data available from one game. I don't, I mean, we can all anecdotally remember guys, but you know, you were out there for about 10 days. I was out there. For, I mean, the best defensive player I saw in my time there was James Outman who made, and he sticks out because he made three great plays in one game. I saw the, the, the Rocky shortstop who apparently only hits home runs when I'm, <laughs> when I'm at their games. Uh, no, I saw him Homer. Remember? Oh, that's was, right. You did too. So, a, as you and me, it's Sam Dykstra who kills him. He can, apparently. he can really, he can really defend. Ezekiel Tovar. He, so he made a couple nice plays and Jacob Amaya. But like, I remember when we were discussing, like, I, I, I would have voted for Altman based on, he made three great plays in one game I was at. Um, I mean, I don't know if there was a guy who stood out for you, but like, I mean, I think, I think Clough was a good pick there. I, you know, I don't know that I saw enough like that. Anyone said, I mean, Altman made also made a great play in the fall stars game. Um, so that, that would have been a good pick, but, you know, I'm assuming, you know, assuming they, they pulled coaches and, and managers yeah. and things like that. So, uh, I think, you know, Clough was very, very good, con- you know, consistently good without knowing, you know, you know, he may have made great plays frequently. They just, you know, didn't yeah. get captured. No, I, I think they did nice. I think they did a really nice job. My, my hat is off to whoever's idea this was. It was a great idea. And I think it was executed very yep. well. I'm not sure I've ever seen you wear a hat, Jim. Um, I do. Your hat is always well, off. He's always taking it off. And That's, that's right. I'm, my hat is off to Chuck Fox and his crew at the Arizona Fall League. So. In perpetuity. All right. And last award that we should talk about quickly, the Darnell Stenson Award is the Sportsmanship uh, Award in the Arizona Fall League. Um, and the Phillies' Logan O'Hoppy won that award. And, Jonathan, you, you uh, had a nice little touch with that. You spoke to uh, a former award winner who now has a very close connection to this year's winner. Yeah, it's Logan O'Hoppy's boss, I guess. Uh, so Sam Fold, uh, who still is the only player to win both the Stenson Award and the MVP at, you know, in the same year, uh, is now the Phillies general manager. And he was kind enough to record uh, 
a video uh, for Logan O'Hoppy, uh, congratulating him from one award winner uh, to the next. Um, you know, it uh, and you know talking to to O'Hoppy for two minutes. Jim, did you get did you get a chance to talk to him when you were there? I did. You know, it's funny. I didn't do a game story on him because you talked to him week, about Rowan yeah, C. Contreras. Say the first the first week I was there, I think we wound up doing game story, two game stories on him in three days. He did play great. Like every game, like he, I, he, I was joking. I saw Dave Dombrowski. I told him like Logan was on base like three times every game I went to, and I saw a lot of Peoria. I did talk to him about Rowan C. Contreras because there was no translator available, and he was great. And I will say. I think his family was out there the whole time I was out there or, or friends or relatives, but he, he had a big cheering section, but he was always, um, you could just tell like, you know, from watching the games, I mean, he did seem very involved with the pitchers. Mm-hmm. You know, as you know, we talk about this, the fall league. I mean, it's a developmental league. You're there to further your career, but just from watching their games and the way he handled himself and handled the pitching staff. Yes. I mean, Logan Hoppy was there to race his profile and help his game. But he's also there trying to help his pitchers. He he wasn't just there for himself. So um, I, I was in. I had a good time talking to him. Um, uh, I, I think you guys interviewed him during the broadcast too, right? Um, yeah, he came into the booth, and I mean, he carries himself like a veteran. He's, he's got um, a lot of charisma to him. He he really yeah. really does. Yeah, I mean, he's just got a good head on his shoulders. It's what you want from from a catcher, and, and you know, and, and it gives you you know. So p- people may ask, like, well, what you know. So what, you know, but I think for that position in particular, it bodes well um, for, you know, he's going to maximize every ounce of his ability and he's, you know, a strong leader behind there. You know, I talked to Devin Sweet, who's, you know, reliever from the Mariners and uh, he couldn't stop singing his praises. And, you know, it seemed like everyone noticed just how hard he worked. And there's a reason why he didn't seem to you know obviously they're all tired it's a long it was a long year for him you know as a catcher uh and he reached triple a but you know kind of one of those guys who's you know, always working hard in the in the weight room he's, he's very mindful about what he does to take care of his body already uh you know and i remember uh, you know he was added to the phillies alternate site in 2020 and I, i'll be honest like i didn't know who he was um and he was not really a prospect at the time, but you, after talking to him for two minutes, I'm like, oh, now I understand why they knew that he would at the, you know, they needed catching and they knew that he would learn a lot and not, you know, uh, not drown in sort of being, uh, you know, in terms of experience way behind everyone else was there. And I think that that helped him tremendously and informed the work that he did to get ready for this past season, which was a really, really good season. And now he's, you know, getting close to knocking on the door, although they're a little crowded in terms of, of catching in the organization. But boy, just an impressive young man to to talk to. And uh, from from my understanding, uh, he was a clear cut choice to to win the Stenson Award this year. Well, good, well, good choice. And we we do have one more award to to discuss the uh, the total base pool crown. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you guys uh, how did how'd that go? I know you guys were in your that uh, AFL total base fantasy league. I didn't pay much attention to it, but uh, I stopped paying attention a long time. I think it was eliminated after the first week. Yeah, I will say. I mean, we did have replacements, but Jonathan I and mean, you couldn't have known guys were going to get hurt. But pretty impressive. The three of Jonathan's five picks, C.J. Abrams, Sam Huff, and Kyle Stowers, combined for seven total bases. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, Stowers played, what, three games. Huff played a half dozen. Abrams never played. Yeah, and I, you know, I same thing, you know, <laughs> this happened to me when we had a we had a fantasy league, a prospects fantasy league a few years ago. And I think moments after our draft concluded and I had drafted uh, Michael Chavis in the uh, in that league, he got uh, he got suspended for the rest of the year. I bl- or what he was got it? suspended a- in the offseason, though, because he got suspended after he played in the fall league. Is that what it was? Yes, yeah, so I don't uh, know how you maybe, would draft nah, him with Chavis. It might, maybe it was something anyway, different. It, anyway, it, it, yeah, so it, it happened here again. I, I drafted my first pick overall was Riley Green. And uh, the next day, we found out he was not going to go to the fall league after all. And then my second round pick, Nolan Gorman, only played two, four, six and games. Yet. Well, the, the, the pick that won the league was you replaced Riley Green with Juan Yepes, which was a tremendous pick. Yeah, yeah. So Yepes had played, I guess... What? No, he he hadn't. He'd only played. Uh, I think he only played, played one, one game. game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, he yeah, yeah that was he a was... good choice. Although we all should be chiding, like none of us picked up Nelson Velasquez as a replacement. Yeah, that's true. When I when I went to replace Nolan Gorman, uh, I my final two candidates were Lars Newbar and Nelson Velasquez, who was red hot at the time. Uh, Newbar was was as well, and being from. St. Louis. I, I couldn't pick a Cub over a Cardinal. I went with Newt Bar. Nearly cost me the title. But yeah, my, my pick, I only had to pick up one guy. I still am rankled that I lost my number two, my, my number one pick, which was right behind you. Spencer Torkelson was off to a great start. And I picked up Richie Palacios, who was off to a hot start. And I think he had something like 16 total bases in his first six games for me. Palacios did. And then he tailed off down the stretch. So yes, I, I, I regret not picking Nelson Velasquez at, at, at that point. No, but that was that was a fun league. I I mentioned at some point during this fall league season we should expand that AFL total basis fantasy league next year. All right, I'm in, and congratulations to you, Jason. Yes, thank you, thank you. Well, let's uh, let's wrap up this uh, Arizona fall league talk, and uh, we'll take a break. And when we come back, Jim is going to talk to Reds area scout Sean Buckley, who signed the Reds rookie of the year, Jonathan India. That's coming up next on the MLB Pipeline podcast. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Jim Callis, MLB Pipeline here with Reds area scout Sean Buckley. We always like to try to talk to the area scouts to sign Rookies of the Year. And Sean, congratulations, Jonathan India, pretty nearly unanimous Rookie of the Year for the Reds uh, last night. Uh, I mean, I know obviously scouts take pride in the players they sign. Uh, how were you, were you monitoring that closely? Did you feel pretty confident he was going to win? Uh, how close were you following all that? Um, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't following it or keeping tabs. No, I definitely was. Um, you know, towards the end of the year, I think I, I was confident he was going to win it. But obviously, you don't want to jinx anything. And, you know, it's a crazy game. And 
with the baseball gods and whatnot. So I, you know, I had a feeling he would, but obviously last night was, was confirmation and, and very rewarding for sure. Yeah. The confirmation is always good. Did you shoot him a text or call him when, when you saw I him? did? Yeah, no, I texted him and just, you know, congratulated him very well-deserved and uh, completely earned and everything. And, you know, so yeah, I was, I was beyond thrilled for him. Yeah, well, it's uh, before we get into kind of the scouting and the signing and the development of, of Jonathan India, I always like to kind of get the scouts background. I actually, it was probably what 2011 when I was at Baseball America, I did a column on you when the Reds drafted you in the sixth round out of St. Petersburg, JC, I think. Yep. Yeah, uh, yeah. is correct. And, and you played uh, four years in the Red system and got up to AAA. Our listeners may not know this, but your, your father, Chris, Longtime scout, scouting director with the Reds, with the Blue Jays. I think he's now the VP of player personnel for Cincinnati. When you were done with playing, I mean, growing up, had you thought like, okay, I'd like to be a scout one day watching what your dad did? Or, or how'd you actually get into scouting when your playing career was over? Yeah, so obviously I grew up in it my whole life. Very fortunate and grateful for that. Um, I knew, I, yeah, first and foremost, my, my biggest goal, my primary goal, my whole life was, you know, to play in the big leagues, be the best player I could be. Um, but knowing that day will come to an end at some point, one way or another. And then after that, I would like to get into scouting. Um, I was, you know, very, very grateful for my professional playing experience. I definitely was thinking and hoping it would have lasted longer than it did, but, uh, the time came for me to transition into this. And, um, you know, fortunately it was, a, it was an easy transition and I kind of jumped right into it, um, with a lot of background experience growing up in it and stuff. So it, and learning from, from him and, and all of his, his contacts and networks and close friends and everything. So definitely very fortunate on that end that it was, um, you know, an easier transition. Did you go on trips with your dad, like go to games with him when you were growing up and he, oh, yeah. not what he was looking at and that type of stuff? Are, are you guys using the, uh, the 20 to 80 scale to rate things even non, I mean. Like oh, 100%. Yeah, no, the, the, the whole family dynamic and environment revolves around baseball. And obviously he's been scouting my whole life. Um, when I was a younger kid, he was, he was an area scout in the same position I'm in now. So um, as he's progressed through his career, um, as well as I have, you know, I've seen him move up the ladder and different levels of um, responsibilities and roles. And, and it's been a great learning experience. And yeah, everything's revolved around baseball. And my little brother played as well. And now he's working for us also um, as a video analyst. So yeah, it's, it's a whole family, family situation. So, so going into 2018, I mean, you were still playing when Jonathan India was in high school, but I mean, people knew who he was. He just wasn't going to be signable for where he'd go in the draft to keep him away from University of Florida. I mean, Florida does a really nice job of recruiting. So he goes to University of Florida. And I mean, I'm sure you saw some of them in 2017, even though you're not bearing down on him because it wasn't his draft year. And his first two years were, were fine. I mean, he didn't put up huge numbers, but he was an everyday player on a good team, won the national title in 2017. It's funny. I still think, I still think that 2017 might have been the least talented of Kevin O'Sullivan's teams at Florida, but that's the team that won the national championship. 
Like yeah. it was just kind of funny. How 100%. That I'd, um, I'd agree. But that the 2016 team was loaded and, and they didn't when they had a bunch of teams to get to Omaha. So anyway, going into 2018, before the season, so let's say fall ball this time, what was your expectation, uh, you know, kind of going into the year on Jonathan Ian? Because I went back and looked at our rankings and he did, we did a top 50 in the preseason and he wasn't on our top 50. So we didn't think he was going in the first, you know, I guess mid by mid second round. We didn't have, I mean, what did you think he was coming into the year? Uh, yeah. So I, I did see him 16 and 17 freshman and sophomore. Obviously it's, you know, Florida, like you said, with the recruiting and the national championship teams and, and everything and all the prospects they have, you're, you're always watching them. And so you had been watching the, the prospects, the follow the previous years leading up to that, like you said, not, keeping an eye on him, keeping tabs, but not really bearing down. You know, I think honestly going into that year, I liked him. I was probably the high guy just through the familiarity of him and seeing how he played and stuff. Um, but I, I would have said in the back of my head, probably going in as kind of like a fourth round type player. Um, and then obviously that quickly changed throughout the spring for us. Yeah, I mean, how fast did that change? I mean, you certainly at the beginning of the year weren't thinking like, oh, I hope we get this guy with the fifth overall pick. Like, no, nobody was thinking that. And, I mean, I know he had – I mean, I think, you know, he – I think he was making a run at the SEC Triple Crown for a while, and he hit a big home run off of Casey Mize who wound up being the number one overall pick in a game that a trillion scouts attended because Brady Singer was pitching for Florida against Casey Mize. And, I mean, Jonathan had momentum by that point, I think, but I think that was kind of like an exclamation point. At what point during the spring did you start to say to yourself, hey, this guy might be in play for the number five pick? Yeah, it, it, you know, it definitely progressed throughout the spring, but it was changing quickly every time I went back. Obviously, as the area scout, I am keeping the most frequent tabs on him. That's kind of my responsibility. So while a cross-checker might come in early, middle, late, I'm rechecking him early, middle, late. And every few weeks you go back there and you just keep raising him up your list. Um, and so it was changing quickly. I think it probably started as potentially a fourth round type idea going into the year. And then it just continually starts moving up. And then it starts getting to, man, this guy's really, you know, playing himself into the first round. And then, yeah, then you're thinking, hey, could we work a deal here to, potentially move him up to five and then by the end of it you were wondering if he'll even be available at five so it, yeah just it was a great year for him and and you know he he really made the final push all the way through and um he earned every bit of it now what was the difference between him from what you'd seen the first two years to his junior year I mean was it just getting physically stronger I mean obviously I mean I guess I think he hit what 21 homers as a junior and maybe 10 or 11 combined his first two years I mean, he always was kind of a good bat on ball guy and knew the strike zone, but he just started hitting the ball with a lot more authority as a junior. Yeah, exactly. It was just consistency. I, um, you know, a very similar comparison to this year's past draft that we selected. Matt Nelson was a guy I watched a lot, which in terms of performance wise and, and numbers and statistic wise, very similar, very good, solid player very solid tools. Um, and then all of a sudden you just have this monster breakout year. And in Jonathan's case, both those guys case, I don't think there was necessarily a swing change or, or anything like that. 
Um, did he get a little stronger? Yeah, I, I believe so. He's, he's a huge weight training guy. He's, he's obsessed with that. He's always training and trying to improve every aspect of his game. So he definitely came in a little bit improved, but yeah, it was, it was just a consistency of performance and just a higher level of performance. Um, and I think with that, uh, as he got rolling, he got more confident and he just kept it going. And when did you find out for sure you were getting him? I mean, did you know the day of the draft uh, or was it really when the White Sox took Madrigal at four? You're like, okay, I'm going yeah. to get him. Yeah, it was, it was when the White Sox called us saying they were selecting him when we knew we were selecting India. Um, so yeah, it was probably, I don't know, 15 minutes prior to picking him when we knew for sure. And then how happy, I mean, it, it, as you know, and I think a lot of our listeners know too, I mean, area scout does a lot of the legwork, but it's not like, it's not like they just get all the area scouts in the room and like, okay, who should we pick number five? You know, there's a lot that goes into it. So it's not necessarily your call, obviously, but you did a lot of the legwork, but I mean, how, how pumped were you to get the number five pick in the draft? I mean, that's, that's oh, cool. I was, yeah, I was ecstatic. Uh, I was actually there watching him play when we selected him. Uh, so I think he might, I'm trying to, he might've been in the regionals or something like that. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think is now the draft is different. Maybe time. super regionals. Yeah. It, it could, I remember yeah, so that was too. He was one regional or super players. regional. Yeah. And obviously he was way up there, strong consideration for us. Um, and so I was just keeping tabs like, all right, let's, let's make sure he's, he's healthy upon right. the pick. So I was there and his family was there and everything. So yeah, it was super exciting. It was a, you know, tremendous feeling. Yeah. You know, and, and it's interesting because his path as a pro has not just been like a straight line of development. You know, he came out, I think he was a little banged up in his, maybe in his debut in his first full professional year. And he put up decent numbers but not spectacular numbers, you know, of a guy like, you know what the pressure's like, you know, guy goes on the top five picks, everybody's expecting, okay, he's going to come out and hit 400 and race to the big leagues. And he was kind of okay. And he got to double eight in his first full professional season. And then I just saw him. It, it was crazy. If you had asked me in the Arizona fall league in 2019, I mean, we didn't know COVID was coming, but like, okay, like Jonathan India is going to be NL rookie of the year in 2021. I saw Jonathan India go like one for 32. He had a really rough fall league. Um, he turned yeah, around no, a little he bit at the end. Um, and so at that point, you know, it's, it, I, I mean, had you, I mean, you're obviously monitoring him, even if you're not, you know, talking to him every day, but I mean, you know, what were you, what was the sense internally that was going on with him? Cause he just, he, like I said, he just kind of put up okay numbers, but he wasn't, you know, showing, Hey, I'm the number five pick in the draft. I'm going out and just crushing things. Right. And, you know, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's usually not a straight line to the right. big leagues in most cases. And especially now for whatever reason, it just seems the, the level of publications and expectations and everything is kind of, uh, it can be so consuming to just expect the fifth pick. I mean, why doesn't he just race to the big leagues and then just continue from there? Um, you know, there's a couple of them who do that, Acuna and Tatis and Soto and some of these guys. But, you know, I only know one Acuna and Tatis right. and Soto. So while you would love to see him just race there, uh, sometimes I think that's a little unrealistic and we get a little impatient and just kind of expect that. Um, and usually that's not the case. Um, and so I think in, in his situation, number one, he was banged up. He, he had little Knicks all throughout that year, especially in the fall league, which they, they ended up sending him home 
um, I think a little early just because of it. Um, so, and he's, he's the tough guy who plays through everything and doesn't, you know, complain about anything. Um, and so he's going to play through the whole year and not say anything, even though I think he was kind of banged up with, with different things all throughout the year. And I think he was, you know, settling into his first full pro season. Um, you know, there's a huge jump, at least for me in my experience, rookie ball to a ball, there's a little bit of a jump, a ball to double a is kind of the bigger jump double A to triple A, and then obviously triple A to the big league. So I think in his first full season, he already got to double A, limited time there. Um, but he was just adjusting. He was trying to, to live up to the expectations. I'm sure he had that in the back of his head. Um, you know, there, there might be a couple other guys from this draft class that are, that are running away from me here or doing this or doing that or whatever. And um, I'm sure he was a little disappointed with it. But, you know, that's baseball. You yeah, I, I wish everyone would just run to the big leagues and perform like they're supposed to, but I don't think it's a straight line. Do you remember what scouting grades you gave him? Your final grades yes. on your report? How'd you grade him out in, in, in the 2018 draft? Uh, so the bat was, was for me, the carrying tool. Um, it was, a, it was a future 60 bat, um, future 60, uh, power production, um, it was a future 55 defense. Um, I had, I had really evaluated him as a third baseman. I had seen him fill in at short um, in which he held his own fine. You thought that is probably, you know, he's not a shortstop, but you think he could, he has the ability to fill in there if needed. Um, I had never seen him play second base, but the, the, you know, so it was a 55 glove, um, I would say about a 55 arm, 50 runner. Um, you know, so I, I think the, the most important tools there, the bat and the offensive production, the defensive production, the value he's providing on both sides were the carrying tools for him. But by no means is, is this guy, you know, running out with sevens and eights. And I, I think everyone can evaluate that, you know, now and, and, and like they did as an amateur. Um, you know, a big part of that is his toughness, his competitiveness, and his instincts that while those are above average major league tools and abilities, uh, the, the instincts, the competitiveness, the toughness sometimes can push those even a little further. Yeah, and I, and I liked his defensive versatility too. I didn't necessarily know where he was going to wind up. You know, like, I, I didn't think he was necessarily going to be a shortstop, but I thought, you know, you could at least explore that, you know, depending on who drafted him. And, you know, comparing him to the, the hitter. I mean, Joey Bart's, Joey Bart's a catcher. But, like, Nick Madrigal, as good as Nick Madrigal was, Nick Madrigal doesn't have the arm for shortstop. And Alec Bohm might be able to play third base. But at the time, and I still kind of feel like probably winds up at first in the long run. And so I felt like the worst case with Jonathan was you have a guy who's going to hit and he's going to play third or, you know, third or six. He's going to play somewhere on the dirt, you know, a, a valuable position. If you were – I know you didn't necessarily watch every game this year, but I mean, I think your report was pretty accurate. Would you change anything about it? If you were scouting him today, would you change any if of I was scout, If I was scouting him today, I'd say I was probably a little light. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I wouldn't change much because, you know, I, I, I think sometimes not so much now upon, you know, having the year he's had, but prior to that, you almost kind of got a little bit of that, well, where did this guy come from? Um, 
just based on on the previous track record of kind of his first full year of of um, professional at bats and performance through a ball and double a and then the fall league you know it it, it obviously did not um, warrant this rookie of the year type expectation and then all of a sudden as he starts taking off it did kind of sound like well where'd this guy come from um kind of like he was at florida honestly i mean he was good not great for two years and then he blows up and i don't know yeah. maybe we should 2024 put him down for the national league mvp award um, <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping so because every three years he blows up so yeah, yeah. no exactly but yeah, he, he's always overachieved, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just he is maximizing the most of his abilities. That's, that's his, his personality, his character traits, and, and that's what makes him good. But, you know, when it's all said and done, we did make him the fifth overall selection. So while I can't tell you I could have predicted this Rookie of the Year um, award, we did think he was going to be, uh, you know, we did believe he he could have the potential to do what he's doing now. You, as you said before, I mean, you felt really good about his makeup. I mean, here's a guy who worked hard to get better, who played through everything. I mean, he was kind of off the charts with that when you were evaluating him too, right? Yes. No, 100%. I always loved his makeup. I thought he was really tough. I thought he was competitive. Um, he was always trying to improve himself. He was really also trying to win the game. Um, that was a big, and he was a baseball player. So you know, you, you see now he stole 12 bases or something like that. I mean, he's trying to do everything he can on every aspect of the game to improve his team. Um, and, you know, I just loved everything about him as far as a makeup standpoint. Did you, uh, when he won the award last night, did you uh, say, hey, dad, did you ever sign a rookie of the year? Did you? <laughs> <laughs> we were actually, me and my dad were actually watching it together. Okay. He has not signed a rookie of the year. So that was uh that was something we did discuss for sure. Um, now, I will say he does get the credit as well because he, he was the director at the time who did pick the player. But um, obviously, I my name goes as the signing scout. But, uh, you know, he did he did have the trust in me to, uh, you know, go off my opinion and, and as well as his and, and make that selection overall. Like you said, I. I do all the groundwork and everything, but it's really not my final decision. Right. Um, unfortunately, it, it, it was his. Yeah, well, it, it's cool it worked out that way. Uh, but, uh, you know, you, you both can take a little credit for it then, I guess. At the exactly. Of Thanksgiving, yeah. you both can, like, uh, I don't know, you can both, like, look at Kevin at Thanksgiving and say, now you got to get a rookie of the year down the road because we're one up on you. Oh, no, we've, we've already let him know. Yeah, yeah. So he's on the chopping block now. But maybe he's crediting some of his video scouting with helping Jonathan have his big season. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. So, so he can take a little credit too. Well, Sean, I really appreciate this. It's been, been fun talking to you. Uh, it's cool. Uh, like I said, it's always fun. Like this time of year when the awards come out, talking to the area guys about the stories behind signing the players. And, you know, I hadn't, I guess I hadn't really thought about it till we're talking, but like kind of what he's done in pro ball is very similar to what he did at Florida where you know, he was, he was fine. But he wasn't, you weren't looking at him as like, okay, this guy's going to be the number five pick or the rookie of the year. And then boom, it happened. So like I said, maybe 2024, we'll be talking to you about his MVP award, the National League or something. 
I'm hoping so. And, you know, he deserves all the credit for this. And, and uh, you know, I'm definitely rooting for that. Um, and, uh, you know, I will say I, I will not bet against Jonathan India. Like I said, Sean, really thank you for doing this. It's been a lot of fun talking to you about Jonathan India. Now we got to get you, uh, we, we need to get you another rookie. So Exactly. That's, that's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm working for. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Our thanks to Sean Buckley for joining us here today. And Jim, a very interesting look at uh, a very interesting National League Rookie of the Year. Yeah, no, it was fun talking to Sean. I, I, I first talked to him. I don't have his draft year off the top of my head, but the, the Reds actually drafted him. His, his dad was a scouting director and was trying to avoid drafting him, but his staff kind of twisted his arm and said, you can't wait any longer. You know, Sean deserves to be drafted and took him in the sixth round. I want to say 2011 without looking it up. Um, and he had some injuries that kind of derailed his career. Um, and I asked him, had he always wanted to go into scouting? And he said yes. And so, you know, he kind of got to the point where he's going to look at more surgery, more rehab. And so he kind of hung it up in spring training in 2016. And obviously, you aren't going to start area scouting in the, in the middle of the spring, like you, like it would have been a little bit late at the end of spring training when he realized he needed to hang it up. So he kind of did a, did it part-time that year and, and started area scouting full-time after that. So he'd, he'd actually seen Jonathan India throughout his career at Florida. Um, and I think the most interesting part to me was, you know, like us, and you know, we talked about when we were talking about rookie years last week, we didn't rank Jonathan India on in our preseason top 50. And, and Sean said he thought he liked him more than most people because he'd seen a lot of Florida. They were obviously a loaded team, and he liked the way he played the game. He liked his makeup. But he thought it was about a fourth-round pick going into the year. And he said it wasn't that he got necessarily better. He just, or, you know, like world's better. Like he made this huge leap. He just kind of got a little bit better across the board. He stayed healthier, and he was just real consistent throughout the year. And he just kept, you know, rising up from fourth-round pick to all of a sudden, hey, first round to – hey, he might be in the mix for us at five to, hey, I hope we get a chance to take him at five. And, you know, drew a parallel, you know, kind of his breakout in his third year at, at Florida kind of paralleled his breakout in his third year in pro ball when he won rookie of the year. All right. Thanks again to Sean Buckley for joining us. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to take a look at some prospects who were added to the 40-man roster ahead of Friday's deadline. That's coming up next on the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Jason Ratliff, Jim Callis, Jonathan Mayo. It was a busy weekend, last weekend for us. Uh, we had, as we've discussed, the Arizona Fall League Championship game on Saturday. We had things going down to the wire uh, during, of the regular season in the Arizona Fall League. And then mixed in there was a, another big day on our calendar that uh, generates a lot of interest. That was the deadline uh, for prospects to be added to their team's 40-man roster. Going into it, we knew that there were 168 players who appeared on their team's top 30 prospects lists who were eligible uh, for the Rule 5 draft if not added to the 40-man roster and thereby protected from the Rule 5 draft. There were 14 players on the top 100 prospects list, and we knew going in that almost without a doubt, all of them would be added to their 40-man rosters, and they were. 
Uh, and since we've been tracking this closely over the past now seven seasons, that is 73 for 73 now of top 100 prospects who have been added. Um, I don't think there's ever really a question on these top 100 guys. Was there a question at all for any of these guys? I was just going to say, like, I can't even imagine a scenario where one of those guys wouldn't be protected. Because if you had a, a guy, a pitcher who was hurt, you can kind of stash those guys on your injured list and then delay having to have them on your big league roster. And I, I like to think, Jonathan, that we haven't misevaluated somebody so horribly that uh, he wouldn't be protected. I, I, I honestly can't think of a scenario where you wouldn't protect the guy unless he just had some horrific, horrific injury. Right, like like last minute, like right before the end of this season. So I'm trying to think of a scenario where he'd still be on a top 100 and not be worthy of a 40-man roster spot. Yeah, because you're right, because we bounced so. Dane Dunning off our list. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, I can't – I mean, we would have to really, <laughs> really misevaluate a player for him not to be protected and be on our top 100 list. And – out of the 168 ranked prospects, um, you know, we going into it, we said that approximately half of all ranked prospects over the past six years had been added to the 40-man roster. That was 53% going into this year. Uh, that number down a little bit this year, 48% were added. Um, I just did a quick scroll through the entire list. I think the, high, the highest ranked prospect, anybody happen to, either of you guys happen to, notice the the highest ranked prospect on a team's top 30 that did not get added i know tim kate was pretty high in the nationals list like around 13 but i yeah. I, I don't know if he was the highest he was not uh there were a couple i think there were a couple guys 12 10 but uh the blue jays number six prospect miguel geraldo uh is the highest ranked prospect that did not get added okay um, but uh hmm. yeah so nearly 50 percent added uh, I, there were 81 ranked prospects, right, Jim? 81. Yeah, I think Jonathan's doing a story where he ranks them all in order, like from one to 81, of how good they are. <laughs> Am I yeah. now? When, when does that do? Isn't is that, that coming in, like, later that, today? That's because I came in third in our exactly. Yes, that's, that's, that's your prize. So. <laughs> oh, that's a great idea. From now on, uh, <laughs> just a line so of skinny that, on each guy. You don't have to. You don't have to do a full paragraph. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks. And then. Non-ranked prospects uh, who earned roster spots, there were 30 of those. And Jim, you are actually, you did work on a story. You didn't rank them necessarily. I think you ended up, you just listed them alphabetically. Yeah, because it's, I mean, we're talking about, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I could have ranked them, but that'd, that'd be splitting hairs. And But there are there's some interesting names on that list. Yeah, I, I, to me, the most, in, I, I'm just going to talk about only two guys. I know Jonathan's going to go off the board. I am. Which is a clutch performance by Jonathan. He's Didn't like your board. list. Yeah, he, he, he like just, just <laughs> d disparages my list by not citing any of the players I pointed out. Well, but anyway, pick... Go ahead. I was going to say the two that I like, um, I'll just filibuster and not allow you to talk about your guy. But no, um, the, the, the two. Is a regular podcast? There we go. Yeah, well, it's, uh, I'll, I'll talk for three hours. But uh, the, the guy who I thought was the best story on the list was Ray Kerr of the Mariners. Left-handed pitcher. He was signed as a non-drafted free agent out of Lassen Junior College of California 2017 for $5,000. Not $25,000. $5,000. One of our bets could pay for five Ray Kerr's apparently. That's a fifth of what I just won in our fantasy league. No, it's a tenth because you got twenty five thousand from each of Yeah, that's right. I keep you could buy ten. You could probably buy all ten guys on this list, or maybe not, because some of them were higher picks. But anyway, Ray Kerr 
Now he's a lefty reliever. His fastball's up to 100 miles an hour. His slider can be a wipeout pitch at times. He had 60 strikeouts and 39 two-thirds innings in double-A AA and triple-A. Um, I mean, he was a, a slam dunk, no doubt, protect this guy because he would have been rule five very easily. But, I mean, that, I thought that was a pretty cool story. And then another interesting story, Hagen Danner, the Blue Jays, um, was a, was signed for $1.5 million as a second-round pick out of, out of high school in 2017. And he was a two-way guy. Jonathan, you do California Force. I want to say I think more teams liked him as a pitcher at the time. Is that correct? <laughs> I, I think it, wasn't it was a landslide, but it wasn't a landslide. I think the fact that he was working out for teams behind the plate made him a little more intriguing there. Um, you know, and it was unclear what his, what his upside on the mound was. He's throwing, he's throwing much harder now and in, in, in shorter stints than he did in, obviously in high school. And in a lot of times, I mean, honestly, the two way guys come out of high school, want to play every day. So a lot of times to sign these guys, you have to let him play every day. So anyway, he was a catcher for a few years, didn't really pan out. And so they moved him to the mound. This year he got his first game action on the mound. And he went to high A, mid-90s fastball, mid-80s slider, ERA right around two. Opponents hit 171 off of him. He threw strikes. Um, so I, I, that was a cool backstory. I mean, most of the guys that got protected have a, have a cool backstory because they aren't super high-profile guys. Um but the, but they all you know a lot of I mean I probably could have done I didn't count them all up I, maybe it seemed like fifteen of them were relief pitchers and I want to say I think of the thirty players we didn't have ranked on top top thirties organization top thirty lists I think only four of them were position players I always feel that every you know rule five time those are the guys that are talked about the most or the guys you know because you're more likely to be able to stash a real five guy in, in, in the bullpen than anywhere else, you know, unless you have a guy who plays three positions or, you know, something like that. So I, I think, you know, I, I, I agree. So I'm going to pick one guy on your list just because I don't want you too upset at me. Um, but that's William Woods of the Braves, mostly because uh, I saw him. Well, I saw him once in person this past week. And then I, when I was covering some games remotely, I talked to him uh, because he uh, he threw well. His, the stuff is really good. It's you know a question of him staying healthy, but um, you know he missed a bunch of time with forearm tightness this year. But uh, the the fastball and slider combination again, he probably ends up in a bullpen. Uh, but his stuff was electric. Uh, the game I saw him in person. Uh, he threw very well. You know, he, he lost feel for the strike zone, and some of that comes with the lack of reps uh, because of some of the some of the injuries. But uh, I, I would imagine that the Braves realized that they might lose him based on his fall league performance uh, alone. So I thought that you know that was a, a good guy for you to have added. And he he had, he'd been on the Braves top thirty, uh, and then kind of had you know been moved off with the draft and, and the injury problems he had. But, and then the other guy I wanted to talk about another folly guy was Logan Gillespie, who we've already talked about because he struck out the side in the championship game. Um, you know, you mentioned good backstories. He was a, uh, an independent league guy signed by the Brewers, spent one year with the Brewers, um, didn't pitch above rookie ball, uh, got released uh, I guess when you know, he played, he, I'm sorry, that was an 18. He got signed out of rookie and then was in rookie ball, 
low A in 2019. Then he got released. And then the Orioles picked him up. Like they didn't sign him until June. And the, the, you know, one of the main reasons they sent him to Fall League was they hadn't seen that much of him. Uh, you know, he did make it up to double A. Uh, you know, he misses bats and he actually threw a lot of strikes during during the regular year, but got hit a little bit too much. And then in the fall league, like the overall numbers don't look very good, but he did strike out 11 and a half per nine. Uh, and if, if any you know, listeners watch the championship game, uh, his fastball and slider were pretty good. Uh, and the, the competitiveness was, was definitely there. And uh, he, you know, pitched his way into earning uh, a roster spot, uh, I think probably based on what he did in the fall league, uh, you know, since the Orioles didn't have a whole lot of track record on the guy. Jim has a story up on MLB.com slash pipeline where he uh, lists 10 intriguing sleeper prospects who were added to 40 man rosters. So you can check out that full story there. Uh, before we move on to our final segment and answer a question in the mailbag, want to do, tidy up a couple things here first we we didn't mention the teams whose prospects won the afl championship we talked about some of the players individually but uh in addition to the cubs we talked about caleb killian uh marlins a's blue jays and orioles prospects winning rings in the arizona fall league so congratulations to all of them jim michael chavis suspension april 6 2018 okay all right just had just had to clear that. No, up. no, yeah, no. That was a good call. I, I, he it was it was from a test, I guess, at the end of the previous season, and I guess he went through the appeals process because I'm not a PD expert, but it's the substance that nobody like. I don't know what, what happened in this game, but it's just a substance that everybody who tests positive for it, nobody ever has any idea. It's like trace amounts, how it wound up in their body, and I think he went through a lengthy appeals process. So, okay, let's answer this question from. The Twitter handle at ledge underscore it legit 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 asks <laughs> Anderson Espinoza and Brent Honeywell were traded away for nothing in the past year. Espinoza held the top 100 spot for two years after Tommy John Honeywell for three. Are you going to reevaluate holding arms in your top 100 post TJ? Now, before we answer that, Jason, you deserve some credit here. And I, I don't think Jake Marisnik likes being called nothing because he got traded for Anderson Espinosa. But you, you actually did some research as to Tom, you know prospects we've had ranked to have Tommy John. So why don't you present, if you could summarize the research you did yesterday afternoon before we answer the question. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think I summarized it uh, by saying that, uh, yes, we, we did, in fact, reevaluate it and basically found that, no, there's not really – any need for us to treat them differently than we have based on that reevaluation. Yeah. I mean, there were some, there were some guys summary of the summary. There there were, there were some guys who didn't pan out and there were other guys who did. And it it was, you know, no rhyme or, or, you know, it wasn't like it was definitive one way or the other. I mean, I do know we, we discussed this. I think we've become a little bit more, Harsh, I don't know if harsh is the right word. I think we've, you know, we, we've, we've been more, we've moved guys down more than we have in the past. Um, uh, you know, I, I do know, like, we're talking about Tommy John specifically. The other thinking is that guys usually come back from it, although, you know, Brady Aiken didn't come back from it. Um, you know, both the guys cited here in this question, I, I think, had it twice. 
or I know Espinosa did. I know Honeywell. I don't know if he had a twice beat repeated arm injuries. Um, but, you know, and you know, the Walker Bueller wasn't ranked before he had Tommy John surgery, but Walker Bueller came back better than ever. Hunter Green, who's on the list right now, has regained his stuff and, and, and got to AAA this year. So it's tough. I remember talking about this with a with a team who asked how we'd handled that because they were debating it internally too. And I said, you know, we, we, we somewhat assume it's, you know, it's different than a shoulder that guys come back from it. Um, but that I actually feel like it kind of comes down to how much you like the prospect to begin with. If you like him, you kind of give him credit. And if you don't like him, then there's a little bit more ammunition, maybe to knock him further down the list. And, and the team official I was talking to said, yeah, <laughs> he noticed that when they're talking about their own prospects, they tended to give them the benefit of the doubt. When they were talking about prospects in other organizations, they tended to penalize them, their assessment of them more heavily. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's something to keep an eye on. You always, I mean, I, I was cool. You did the research, Jason, cause it's, you know, it's, I think it's always good to go back and, and try to learn from things, but you know, I, I think we're, we're maybe a little bit more, I, I guess if we're knocking guys down the list further now, at least personally, and I don't know if you agree with this, Jonathan, it's because we're saying, you know, even though we feel like they might come back, they're not going to pitch for a year. Then they're not going to be full go for probably another year. So it's pushing their ETA back almost two years. And that does affect their prospect status. No, it, it, it definitely does. And I think, I think, you know, sort of bigger picture is that we don't have some sort of formula, you know, to determine, you know, Tommy John surgery equals X in terms of, moving a guy down or dropping him off in the top 100. And, you know, as Jason's research proved to be true, like it really depends on the, on the case. And that's what we'll do. We'll do it kind of case by case. Um, You know, some of it might be, you know, how old the guy is. Uh, You know, I I was, you know, Hunter Green, you know, the, the example that you gave, you know, one of the things that gave me confidence is how young he was so that even though it, took him, you know, a good amount of time to come back. Uh, he's still going to be on the young side. Now we don't have any data in terms of the guys who had Tommy John surgery that young and what happens later on. Uh, but in terms of evaluating, I, you know, I think that that comes into play. Uh, his, the timing for him was in some ways a blessing in disguise for him in the reds because 2020 was a lost year anyway. So he could get a ton of work in and not have that, rough first year back on the mound where he's just trying to get feel, but pitching in games, he did all that kind of away from the public eye and then came out looking as good, if not better uh, than ever. So yeah, I think it really just depends on, on each case and we'll continue to, to look at it, but I do appreciate the question in terms of, well, yeah, let's, let's, let's take a look and see if there's a pattern that we've been missing. turns out there's not. Yeah. So some, Previous instances of guys who fit this bill that they were already ranked in the top 100 overall when they had Tommy John. Uh, We can go all the way back to Jared Parker, who uh, was ranked number 18 overall in 2009, had Tommy John in October 2009, and remained on the top 100 list in 2010, 11, and 12, and only really dropped a little bit to number 21, 29, 26. Um, Also going back to around that same time, Dylan Bundy uh, was the number two overall prospect in baseball in 2013 when he had Tommy John. He'd been on the list a couple times 
He remained on the list at number 20 in the next couple of years. Um, also back around that same time, Jamison Tyon, who I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he was on, he's been on a top 100 list more times than any other player. Um, he had been on the list for four years before he had Tommy John surgery, remained on it uh, for two years after, although he dropped from 16 down to 31 and then 54. Um, Casey Kelly, another guy from around that same time. Uh, Dane Dunning also fits the bill. AJ Puck, Alex Reyes, Michael Kopech. So as you can see, kind of a mixed bag there in terms of guys who did or did not mount back. All right, thanks to at Ledge It for that question. Thanks to Sean Buckley for joining us on the show today, and thanks for all of you uh, for listening. That's going to do it for this week's episode of the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week.